This is Audacity, storytelling with Letitia Bariola. In this podcast, you'll hear stories of how entrepreneurs, industry leaders, creatives, and everyday people figured out how to be more of themselves. That takes a certain intention, determination. I call it audacity. I'm so grateful for your listens. Uh, There are so many podcasts you could be listening to right now, but you chose to be right here with me, and I appreciate that. In this week's episode, you'll hear from Dr. Tracy Alloway. She was born in Malaysia, moved to the U.S. when she was a little girl. She's lived all over the world, El Salvador, got her Ph.D. in Scotland. She's been a psychology professor at the University of North Florida for the past eight years. I recently did a TV interview with her about a global study on happiness. As soon as I spotted her in the hallway, she was awaiting our arrival. I knew she had something special. Happiness just spills out of her, very professional, on her game, knows her stuff. But I could also tell that she spends time on herself, tweaking, making sure she's aligned with what she believes in. That's why she's the perfect person for my first series, I hope, on the psychology of audacity. I want to give a scientific, research-based look at the magic that I'm talking about. What makes some go after it and others wait for it? I hope you can find a couple of gems at least to take with you. This is the psychology of audacity. And my first question to Dr. Alloway... What do you think about my interpretation of audacity? For me, I think it means confidence. And I think for a woman, it's really important to have that idea of confidence because it sounds so simplistic, but it isn't really. And to give you an example, there's research to show that when a job is posted, men will apply for that job even if they only have 40% of the criteria required for that job position. Women won't apply unless they have 100%. So sometimes we as women say, oh, well, you know, the, the cards are stacked against us. We don't get, you know, the jobs don't come up. When actually, sometimes we're our own worst enemy. We're not being audacious enough to say, yes. I have 40% of these characteristics they're looking for in this job. I'm putting my resume in for this. That's so interesting because I've talked about this before with another guest Mm -hmm. um, from Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. Mm -hmm. That's the first time I heard of that Mm -hmm. where she was seeing more and more women cower and, you know, say, I can't, Mm -hmm. there's, I can't do that. Like I've got a child. Mm -hmm. I'm what we've list all the reasons why we can't, but men just don't feel that way. What, where do you think that comes from? I think it has to do with maybe if you want to think of it from an evolutionary psychology perspective, that our role typically is to be very nurturing, to be very caring. And so as a result, we don't prioritize ourselves. We prioritize others. Now, that has benefits. Obviously, that creates a very empathetic nature, which can then lead to a lot of pro-social behavior. We're very altruistic. We look outwards. We want to be very caring. But if you think of your own professional trajectory, that may be less helpful because you have to care for yourself as well. Um, And, you know, one of the things that kind of go along with that, there's a a brain imaging study that was done to show that when you hold an idea that's very close, the parts of the brain that are activated are the parts that are associated with your identity, your sense of self. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes as women, we maybe don't hold our professional goals or aspirations that closely to connect it to our sense of identity. 
And as a result, we don't pursue it with the same tenacity and vigor that someone else might. What would you say then to people who say, and and it's interesting you say that because I'm hearing more and more of I am not my job or I am not just my career. And there is that distancing that happens Mm -hmm. a lot with women because I do feel like a lot of us get consumed in it and lost in it. And we have to remind ourselves like, okay, I'm more than this. But I've never heard that we actually we actually um, don't identify truly with our work sometimes. Mm-hmm. Lately, I've been hearing a lot of, you know, I'm more than my job or I'm not just my career. I'm all these different things. Yeah. But you're saying we don't do women, you know, as a whole don't do a lot of identifying with our work. Yes, and I think that's also a disservice when we think of a mental health perspective. So there's a growing number of research to show that women who work or have multiple roles, home life, family, Mm -hmm. whether it's caring for children or a family member, as well as have something outside the home, that offers a buffer against depression. So if you think of the statistics, women are twice as likely to experience depression compared to men. And in part, that's our biology, our neurology. We have three times more neuroreceptors that attach on to stress and anxiety compared to men. Mm-hmm. So th- that is not deterministic in, in a sense. We can overcome that. But one way to do that is to create outlets and avenues outside just a single option. And that's why I think it's so important if you do have, whether it's a volunteer position or a professional position, embrace it. Be passionate about it. Pursue it. Yeah. That is so interesting about how we relate to stress and depression. Sometimes I'm like, geez, are we just like what? Everything when you look at from alcoholism to depression to across the board, women seem to be, um, our numbers are just skyrocketing compared Mm -hmm. to men in a lot of those areas. Do you find that in your practice? I do. And I think what's really interesting is that I had a chance to do a large scale study. We had close to 4,000 people and I was tracking people as young as 16 up to 80 years of age. And I was looking at some of these predictors of depression. And one of the things I found was this idea of optimism or your your outlook, your future outlook, the kind of glass half full approach. And I found that women across the board, whatever age you are, are far more optimistic than men. And that offers a buffer against depression. So you have that on one side. But then on the other hand, you have this idea that women tend to be diagnosed more than men with depression. Now, in part, they may seek help more than men, and certainly that plays a role. But I think we're missing a piece of the puzzle, and that is that women also tend to ruminate or reflect on negative events more than men, and that is the number one predictor of depression. So let's say you did a job interview, and instead of thinking, you know, kind of in a proactive way, I did ABC. Next time, I also want to mention these other facts about myself, kind of promote myself in this way. Instead of having that proactive approach, women tend to think of that negative framing, which is, oh, I should have said that. I always forget that. I always kind of bomb and just don't, you know, pitch myself well. And so that rumination leads to depressive tendencies. My goodness. I'm learning more and more that our brain and basically how we think Mm -hmm. is such a huge factor in how, I mean, obviously, but, but when you really think about it, But it's a huge factor in how we live our life, how we see the world. And I'm wondering, what is it in that audacious brain, people who are very confident in themselves, um, how do they sort of combat depression or those negative thoughts? What are some of the things that goes through their mind when there's a challenge? 
That is such a great question, and I think that confidence is really important. So we know those famous studies that kind of fake it till you make it, and there's a lot of uh, power behind that research. So one example is that um, Harvard researchers found that just doing a power pose, you know, that kind of Wonder Woman pose. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're doing it right now, guys. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where you put your hands on your hips. And they found that holding that pose for two minutes not only made the individual feel more confident, wow. but physiologically, it also lowered their cortisol levels, which is your stress levels. So not only do you have that um, cognitive change that, hey, I'm more confident, but physiologically, your body is responding to just simply putting your hands on your hips, standing up straight for two minutes. I wonder if more if we did, and maybe you've done this before, you've looked at people who have better posture mm-hmm. or are um, feel physically strong, if they are more confident than someone who has poor posture and may f- be may not exercise or may be a little bit weaker in their body. Have you seen that? There's a lot of research coming out of that. Another great example would be, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, mental health and happiness, that they found that even forcing yourself to smile changes your outlook. And if you feel like you can't smile, a a cheat way or a hack way to do that is to bite on a pencil because that engages the same facial muscles as a genuine smile, or at least part of the muscles, and kind of tricks your brain into saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to turn this day around. I'm going to Fight on that pencil and feel happier. That is, so there is a strong connection between your body image and how you feel or really what your body does Mm -hmm. and how you think, right? Absolutely. My, actually, my PhD work was on this idea of what we call embodied psychology or embodied language, where the way our bodies move can affect the way we use our language and ultimately the way we think. So you can trick your, if you make your body do something, even if your mind isn't into it, you can you will eventually catch on your your brain, your soul, your spirit will eventually say, okay, she's smiling. We need to be happy. Exactly. Exactly. Or be confident. Okay, she's exactly. doing this weird Superman <laughs> pose. <too. laughs> we need to be strong for her. That's right. And that's why there are so many books and they tend to sell really well because they are teaching people how to adopt a physically a strong and confident position, whether you're seated or whether you're standing. How about that? I have to be way more aware of that. Mm -hmm. Even when maybe you're just listening to someone or you're not doing the talking or you're just in a room, you know, I think we can let that part of us go Mm -hmm. because we're listening or we're concentrating. But I wonder if we just were more self-aware about how we were moving, um, if that would then, you know, change some things happening in our mind. As the body goes, so goes the mind. I know it sounds simple, and we've heard this sort of before, right? But Dr. Alloway is essentially saying, fake it until you make it. Okay, so you don't feel strong enough to charge forward? Show me your most authentic version of a superwoman. Put your hands on your hips, chest out, head high. Your emotions maybe got the best of you when you're feeling sad or lost. Okay, smile. You lead the way here. You can take charge and tell your whole being, this is the way I want to go. Follow. It can sound elementary, but if you look at it this way, this could be one of the keys to living an audacious life. Now, let's look at our thoughts and social norms. So bringing it back to you know cognitive skills, we often hear the, the idea promoted that women or girls aren't good at math. And we find that it's not necessarily the 
girls themselves, when you look at school children that are promoting this, sometimes it's the parents. Sometimes it's a female teacher that would say to these young girls in the classroom, you know, I wasn't very good in math, guys, so we'll just kind of, you know, go through this quickly. And the studies show that the boys in her class aren't negatively affected, but the girls in her class are. So they are looking at this female role model and kind of subconsciously taking on this idea that I guess I'm not good at math. But to counter that, studies have tracked kids from middle school up to high school and find that although the female students reported more math anxiety, when they actually looked at their performance, their math performance, they performed just as well as their male counterparts. So in other words, that anxiety wow. is is misplaced. Wow. It doesn't actually bear out when you look at their performance. What have you found, what has been most surprising to you personally when you study um, people who are confident or just really authentic and feel good in their skin? What has resonated with you the most? It's a recent study that we just finished up, and it was actually looking at narcissism and leadership. Really? We often think of narcissism as good or bad, but a better way to characterize it would be to consider it adaptive or maladaptive. And there, I'm looking mm. at your puzzled face, and already, you know, we're, we're thinking of this cultural narcissism, idea that, yeah, yeah narcissism She's is so never good. Yeah. <laughs> but in fact, in some cases, so if you think of the workplace, if you don't promote yourself or say, hey, this is what I'm good at, no one else is going to step in necessarily and do that for you. And so um, what I did was I looked at a, a few hundred millennials, male and female, and I wanted to look at their leadership style. So we have a transformative leadership style where you're relationship-driven. Mm-hmm. We have a transactional leadership style where you're goal-driven. And then you have a passive leadership style where you're kind of hands in the air, whatever. I don't know what to do here. You guys just do it, you know. Um, and again, these leadership styles, like extroversion, introversion, there's no right or wrong way. Yeah. It's just whatever is best for the situation. So some cases you want to be more relational. In other cases, you want to get that goal done to meet your deadline. But what was interesting is what I found with our female leaders. And I found that the female leaders who rated themselves as being more narcissistic tended to adopt a passive leadership style. So in other words, they would over-exaggerate, you know, their abilities. They felt they were entitled to certain things. That was really nice to (laughs) over-exaggerate. I'm going to start using that. She's just over-exaggerating a bit. (laughs) But no, that's a good way to say it. Okay, over-exaggerate. Yes. What was the other one you said? um, And they they over-inflate what their abilities. Mm Over-inflate, yes. Okay. And um, that led to a more passive leadership style. So it's almost like they had this disconnect that I'm saying that I can do, you know, things at a 10, but inside I don't feel that I can can and so I can't step up I'm going to take this passive approach and that leadership style is predictive of stress and burnout in our female millennial leaders so how do we there's a missing ingredient there how Mm -hmm. do we talk the talk and then actually carry it out because so are we saying narcissism is good for the female leader are we saying it's holding them back It can hold them back. It is. Okay. So what can we add in there then? Like, okay, maybe we shouldn't, but okay, let me back up. Because we're saying men say that they can do all things, right? They've got 40% (laughs) of the skills. I'm just going to apply. They get the job. Women, I think, may be more realistic about it, Mm -hmm. and they don't even apply. Mm -hmm. But then we're saying, too, that you can't be overly confident Mm -hmm. because you may not be able to carry it out. So what are we missing? 
And I think it's about finding that balance. So it's okay. easy to be polarized. And there's a lot of research on what we call blind optimism, where we're just like, yeah, it's all going to work out. You know, everything will fall into place. The universe will help me out here. And research shows that that mm. kind of blind optimism, if you're an entrepreneur, yeah. is not helpful because people with mm -hmm. that kind of blind optimistic approach tend to fail very quickly because they're not being realistic. So I think we want to have two things in place, especially if you're a woman. The first is to um, be confident, recognize your abilities. So don't downplay, knowing that our natural inclination is to say, I don't have 100%, therefore I'm not going to do it. You could say, you know what, I have 60% and that's over, you know, half. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to just Ooh. throw my hat in the game here. Um, and the second is to not swing to the other extreme and feel like you have to play by sometimes the guy's rules by kind of swaggering and say, yeah, I am all that. Believe it, but you don't have to go to the other extreme. And I think that's where we're still kind of trying to find our balance, that we don't really realize that the same rules apply across the board. And so a lot yeah. of these studies will say X predicts Y, and we think it's the same for men and women. And that's really what I've spent the last few years in my research is trying to tease apart the two, that we have a general principle, but we know that men and women's brains operate a little differently. So when it comes to something like confidence, we don't need to push for 100% because that's going to feel disingenuous to wow. us, which is going to lead to this kind of passive leadership style oh and more gosh. stress and burnout. So find a happy medium knowing that we're going to go, we're going to try to aim for 100, but we don't need to. We can aim for above average, at, you know, 60% of the job requirements and still be confident that we have a good chance of success. This, it, are you guys hearing this? Because for me, I, I can totally, I never knew that I have felt that way because I am, um, I know th that much that I need to be, you know, you can do this, Tish, like you've, you've been done this before, mm -hmm. you can da da da, like you've done, if you can do this, you can d you definitely do that. You know, we talk ourselves through, especially if you're starting a new project or let's say some people may want to switch careers. We do that self-talk, but I think where we go maybe too far it's just like believing that, believing the whole picture, like, no, you haven't done 100% of these skills. Yes. You know, you maybe you're 60, but you know what? That yep. may be enough for now, and exactly. I'll pick up the rest. Yes. Or I have the ability to learn more. Because mm -hmm. then if you show up in that new place, and then you're going to feel like an imposter. <laughs> It's perfect that you said that because that was the next point I was going to make, this yes. idea of the imposter syndrome. And again, we think it affects women. And indeed, the idea was created starting uh, f you know, with the idea that women tend to feel that more. But recent studies show that men feel that too. But the difference lies in how they respond to that feeling of an imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Men tend to crumble under that stress of feeling like, you know what, I'm an imposter in this situation. Women rise to the challenge. So a recent study just found that women will say, I don't feel like this. I'm going to learn on the job so that mm -hmm. I'm not feeling that yeah. I don't have all the skills. And so knowing that as a woman, I think also is powerful. So don't just, we're stopping short. We're saying, I feel like an imposter. Oop, game over. I'm out. Yeah. But we need to kind of look beyond, pull that curtain back and say, all right, maybe you're feeling like an imposter. You have 60% of the skills required for the job. The next step to know is that women tend to rise to the challenge and say, I want to get that extra 40%. I want to wow. know what I need to do so that I can be a top performer. That is so good. So I wonder on the other side, when you're a hiring manager or a big corporation or just uh, someone who makes the decisions, I wonder what it looks like on the other side when you have those two candidates where you may have one candidate who's 40%, but super confident 
but you have, you know, another who's also 40 percent, maybe not as confident, but has been very vocal about like, this is what I can do. I can do all this very well. This is the other stuff that I am open to. You know, I don't know the right language, but Mm -hmm. you have to let them know that I know I can do all these things. Mm -hmm. Give me, you know, a couple months and the right mentor. And I'm I wonder what the, the decision makers think about that. Yeah, and studies have looked at the difference between competence, which is what we've been talking about, that 40% or 100%, versus confidence, which is also what we've been talking about, that kind of fake it till you make it or power posing. And nine out of 10 times, the studies show the same pattern. People will choose the confident person over the competent person. So a better example would be that if you have a person, an applicant with 40% skills, but 100% confidence, versus someone with 60, 80% skills, but 40% confidence, people typically choose the confident person. So that first impression really makes a difference. So again, if you know you have 40%, don't come in there with your head hanging low saying, I have it, but you know, your words matter, but so does your body language. And it's important just to have that, that power posture, that straight back, that good posture saying, this is what I know, and this is what I'm hoping to gain if I get this position. Audacity, a mixture of confidence, balance, connection through your mind and your body. I asked Dr. Alloway what else she's seeing in her research when it comes to the bold, uh, the ones that bet on themselves, if you will. She bases her answer on a sense of personal freedom. Um, I think in part it has to do with this idea of autonomy as well. And it, that sounds like a really odd word, but it's it's very deep-seated in the idea of positive psychology that when we believe we have the freedom to choose something, we tend to hold it more strongly and more closely to us, and it becomes part of our identity. And this is a big part of positive psychology too, feeling the ability to choose. So someone else isn't saying, hey, do this project. You're saying, hey, this is this mm. is what I'm passionate about, just like we were talking yes, about a bit earlier. Podcast. That's right. Um, and in oh. another piece of study that I finished also um, here, we were looking at a few hundred different people, again, looking at mental health as an outcome in depression. And we found that a sense of autonomy was one of the big predictors that protected or buffered against mental health uh, issues like depression. Wow. Autonomy. So I've always wondered, some people sit in here and they're so just when I, I'm like, well, how did you make this step? Mm-hmm. Or how, what made you think that you could do that? And a lot of times they look at me like, I don't, I just, I just did it. And me, I'm like, for me, I have to warm myself up. I have to get advice. I have to sleep on it. I have to pray on it. And then I finally sort of make the move and I don't really make it. And then I can think about it. Some people just do it. Yes. So are some people born with it? <laughs> Please tell me they are because I don't understand how some people so effortlessly put themselves out there and just do what their heart's desire is to do. That is a great question and one that I actually looked at in my lab, looking at this idea of decision making. Yes, because like you, I'm fascinated by why some decisions seem so easy to make and others, you know, you contemplate for ages and you're still not sure, you still second guess. And so when we look at decision making, there's two two paths. One is what we call a hot decision, which is emotional. We just kind of do it because we feel it and we're just, yeah. it's in our gut. You yes. know, we use those kinds of words. And the second path is what we call a cold decision making, where it's rational, it's utilitarian, you think of the greater good, and so on. And I found that um, 
you can flip that switch in your brain. So let's say you have to make a decision. Maybe you you have an uh, a opportunity to move to a different city for uh, you know job or, or personal relationships or so on, and you're just not sure. You know, you're kind of going back and forth emotionally. You, you're feeling one way, uh, but it, what kind of what's the rational decision? So I found that by sticking your hand in ice water <laughs> for one minute, you can flip that switch from making an emotional decision to a more rational decision. Wow. And the reason for that is because our brain, we can use two different ways in our brain. One is what we call the amygdala, which is your brain's emotional center. And mm-hmm. that, that's responsible for that emotional quick, I'm going to do this, you know, don't yeah. stop me kind of approach versus your prefrontal cortex. That's the front of your brain where you have to stop and consider it. And when you put your hand in that bucket of ice water, we know that your amygdala, your emotional center now is preoccupied. It's kind of thinking. It has to manage that pain. And all of our participants rated, you know, acute pain, obviously, yes. uh, as approved by the ethics board. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, they, they rated some discomfort. And so that amygdala now is kind of shifted. It's distracted. It is distracted. And so that leaves your prefrontal cortex free to say, hey, I can step up. I can think about my options and think about this a little rationally. So um, I don't think there's a necessarily a right or wrong way. Sometimes maybe an emotional decision is, is a good one too. Yeah. But for you as an individual, if you want to be maybe have a more utilitarian or objective approach, find that bucket of ice water and that stick your hand so in good. for a minute. You're the queen of practical <laughs> things you can do from biting a pencil to get some, give me a bucket of ice water. I got a decision. <laughs> As I mentioned, I met Dr. Alloway when I was working on a story about the World Happiness Report. It's an in-depth study on who is the happiest in the world and why. Well, the U.S., it keeps declining in happiness, according to this study. Even though we are economically strong, we're not even in the top 10 when it comes to happiness, according to this study. Finland is number one. The Huffington Post puts it this way. Finland has a strong social safety net, including a progressive, successful approach to ending homelessness. It also has a high-quality education system, and its commitment to closing the gender gap is paying off. So Finnish society has been built in such a way that people are supported but still feel like uh, they have control over their lives. Dr. Alloway is a world traveler and a psychologist, so I figured I would have her weigh on this. I was curious what she thought about the interpretation of wellness in other parts of the world. We are very caught up in ourselves, Mm -hmm. and sometimes we think we have all the answers. Mm -hmm. The American way is the best way. And, of course, we are leaders in so many different areas, but oftentimes when I hear about what's happening in India or or hear what's happening in in even Europe in some places, They do things a little differently, whether it be their relationship with technology Mm -hmm. or how they're eating together no matter Mm -hmm. what, or that they shut down stores in Italy for every day for like two hours to go be with, just have life. Yes. I am fascinated by that. That is great. It's like you're reading my mind right now because uh, (laughs) I listed all of them. (laughs) That's right. Well, with Italy, I had a visiting professorship Mm -hmm. last summer, and that was the country I was going to identify. And I think for two reasons. One, Sometimes it's easy in a you know in in a Western country like you're mentioning to feel very self focused and mm-hmm. maybe it's you know it's part of self preservation and and those are all yeah. good things, but as a result we become very internalized and we tend to hyper focus on maybe our own 
issues for you know lack of better word but i found that in italy it was much more of an external focus people were not so constantly consumed with how to mm-hmm. you know n- necessarily kind of that inner working so much and as a result they felt more relaxed because they didn't have to hold on to things so closely yes and i noticed that there was a lot more of a community time like you yeah. mentioned things shut down this that family eating and the research is on their side you know wh- when you feel a sense of connectedness or belonging that leads to higher life satisfaction whether that belonging is virtual or digital or whether it's in person or it could even be a perception of belonging so it's not that you need 100 friends you could have one good friend and feel you know your perception of that is that you feel a real sense of belonging with that individual and that is sufficient to provide life satisfaction and happiness. And so I think that's an important thing that they tend to focus on that they have that family, they have that network, that community yes. um that's very supportive. There's also a lot of volunteer work and again the mm. studies are coming out to show that if someone is experiencing mental health issues, a great way to kind of again get out of your own head is to volunteer. And so when you're spending time giving whether it's you know with an animal shelter or a home or any kind of you know whatever really is your passion but that time volunteering just shifts your focus from that exactly. internalization exactly yeah. into something else and that for me I'm noticing um other cultures tend to do quite well. Yeah. Okay, so what are maybe the top 3 things that we can do uh to live a more authentic life because again this voyage for me is not not life hacking but everyone is so different in how mm-hmm. they have figured out a way to be authentic about who they are and what they want mm-hmm. um but you're a psychologist so i feel like you've got the goods for real on how <laughs> across the board different personalities men women how we can all sort of figure out okay i want to feel my best and and be as close to who i am as possible in this world how can we do that That's a great question and actually that was part of the focus of a new app that uh <laughs> it's going to be coming out in July. It's called Brappy for Brain Happy and it's about giving, you know, you have a little action, a little life hack every day that you get yeah. to do that's rooted in science. So it's everything, you know, a lot of what we're talking about today. It's these little things like what can you do whether it's bite a pencil yes. or stick your hand in <laughs> a bucket of ice water. Uh but if I have to distill it to three things for our listeners, yes. um I would say The first is to power pose, you know, spend 2 minutes and you don't have to say anything. No, you you could just breathe, close your eyes, open your eyes, but put your hands on the hips and, you know, back straight and just do that for 2 minutes. Already you can feel within a few seconds you know your wow. whole outlook changes. Do people really do this every day? I bet you some of the top, you know, power brokers <laughs> are in their rooms at 8 a.m., 7 a.m., 5 a.m. 5 a.m., you're right. <laughs> I my time is all messed up because I'm mornings, but whatever time real people wake up in the morning, you know, in a mirror or something doing this. Yeah. It's got to be some secret that they do. Okay, <laughs> that's number 1. I'm doing that now. Um the second thing would be based on my own research looking at at life satisfaction and mental health is optimism. And optimism is a big buffer against feeling depression. And the way to do that is to whether you keep a gratitude journal, whether you just even say, so I like to run in the morning and as I run thankfully it's quite early so I yell out loud things that I'm grateful for. I'll say sometimes it could be I'm grateful that I live in Florida. I'm grateful wow. that I get to move today. Um and so whatever it is just you know say out or, or write it down however you your personality likes to do that 
focus on that optimistic framework rather than oh it's going to be such a busy day yeah. I've got so much going on or it's Monday exactly. and it's time for work again and all the fun I had over the weekend this is me coming back from <laughs> Memorial <laughs> you know like oh we're going back to normal da, da, da. even if generally you're not an optimistic person and you consider yourself a realist or even a pessimist it's not set yeah. you can actually change that set point in your brain you can move the needle ha I hope you feel empowered. Leave a review and rate this episode in Apple Podcasts and also share this link from SoundCloud. I really appreciate you guys, this community that we're forming. It's really special to me. So give me your feedback. Hit me up on Instagram, Letitia TV. And don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts so you know every time a new episode drops. Thanks so much. Until next time.